sneak some water there at the last second. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Uh, Father God in heaven, um, we're just here on earth, and, and, and you are so far above us, and yet you, you, from your position of great power and authority, uh, rule the cosmos, and you rule the nations, and you see them all, and you see their suffering and their pains, and you see their, uh, their lack of hope, their need of hope, their missing blessings from their disconnection to you, and we pray Father, for the gospel to go out to this world, to the places where it has been unheard, to the places where it has been ignored, to the places where it has been misheard, that you might conquer hearts by the power of your grace. And God, we pray for the nation of Turkey, and we pray, Father, that you would uh, Soften the government there to respect the uh, freedoms of their people to to worship according to their conscience, uh, not just by letter of law, but by the way they carry out that law. And we pray for uh, a gospel movement, particularly among uh, Muslim populations there in Turkey, that they may know that there is a hope, that there is life, that there is a promise of eternal life that can be theirs, that can be sure, that does not uh, rely on the, the whims of a fickle God who, who is uh, too far removed to give his assurances and promises of salvation, who has done nothing to make a way for salvation, but we thank you that we know that we have a way of salvation, and that salvation is sure by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for the, the Kurds of Turkey, that, um, that we thank you, Father, for the, the churches that, that are, are there and are strong there, and we pray, Father, that they would uh, multiply and increase and grow, and that uh, you would protect them not only from religious persecution, but from ethnic persecution. May they uh, also, in, in uh, uh, the, the spirit that uh, only the, the one who died for his enemies can give them uh, a, a love, may they have a love for their ethnic Turkish neighbors, that they might hear and receive and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we, uh, we're coming into this Christmas season, and we are going to be uh, tempted in every way to forget you. May we not. Uh, may we have our eyes on the coming King, even as we remember your coming. And we pray, Father, uh, that as the stores and the sales and the decorations turn from one uh, commercial event to another, that it would be Jesus that we seek to magnify, not our homes. That it would be Jesus that we seek to magnify, not our wallets. That it would be Jesus we seek to magnify, not our status on social media. And that we would care only for, desire only that well-done, good, and faithful servant uttered by his lips. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're getting close uh, to the end of a service, uh, ser sermon series, excuse me, on the book of Genesis, but we've got a couple more to go. So turn with me to Genesis 10. Um, we got a little bit of a mouthful this morning, but that's all right. We're going to get through that. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, the whole chapter, not a long chapter, but it's got a lot of uh, words. I thought about inviting one of you guys to, to read it for me, but I know how you all feel about that. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavin, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Tagormah, the sons of Yavin, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, 
Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabdakah. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Resen, before Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lechabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaslukim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shalah, and Shalah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Yoktan. Yoktan fathered Almadad, Shel, uh, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Yobab. All these were the sons of Yoktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. If you pull up uh, Instagram or X today, you can be connected immediately with hundreds of millions or maybe billions of people around the world and, and find out what they're thinking about, what they're doing, how they see themselves, how they see the world, what they've accomplished and sometimes what they've failed at. You know their conquests, you know their grievances, their bows, their bells, their broken hearts. All of it is there. And it's all there, it seems like, for a game of compare and contrast, where you are the subject and the object. Even those social media sites that you might think of as like second rates and, and has-beens, the ones from other countries you never have heard of, have tens of millions of active users. Does that make the world feel small, or does that make the world feel large? When we turn to Genesis 10, we see this, this picture of the, the great interconnected web of humanity. And for the first readers, and maybe even especially for us, it, it makes the world feel both kind of small and kind of huge. We're introduced to all these, these names and places, and they, these Names have fascinated the, the faithful for centuries. You, you open up any commentary on this chapter of the Bible, and you'll see all these attempts to, to, to dig into each reference, each name, and what that might mean and what it might point to. Some of them are clear, like Egypt, we kind of know Egypt. Others are mostly clear, like Gomer, representing the Sumerian people of what would become southern Russia near Crimea. And then others get more speculative. They've just been a little bit lost to time. Does, does the name Japheth relate to the Greek titan named Iapetos? Was, was Tarshish the Tartessus of what became Spain? And those are good reasons to be doubtful, but we wonder. 
And so the commentaries, the books, the studies, they go on and on and on. Every one of these little words and places and names. You know what I couldn't find of, much of? I couldn't find many sermons on this passage. Uh, not Charles Simeon. I couldn't find a sermon by the great Charles Simeon or the, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Not, not even Liberian warlord turned preacher, general, but naked. That's a real guy. For a passage that has fascinated so many generations of Jews and Christians, that was surprising to me. You see, somebody would, would dig into this, but, but maybe it's because we get so lost in the weeds of each and one of these names, we miss the big picture. We miss the, the simple truth. That all of the world's people, all of us, are one. All the world's people are one. That's the basic idea. And we can see several implications of that idea that I think are pointed to in this chapter. And so let's dig into that. But I want to get something clear off the top because I think it's something that will make the entire passage a little bit easier to digest, especially as you go back through and maybe a Bible reading plan next year in the beginning of January. You start in Genesis and you get a few days in and you're in Genesis 10. And what do you do with this chapter? Biology is beside the point. This isn't a genetic family tree. At least not in the same way that Genesis 5 is or Luke chapter 3. Maybe one of the most obvious verses to point this out for the average reader is in verse 5. Uh, in verse, excuse me, verse 6, uh, it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now, if you don't know the others, you probably know Egypt. Your, your translation might say Mitzrayim, but that's the Hebrew word for Egypt. The nation at the mouth of the Nile River and along its northern banks. And then, then you've got the name Cush. Cush is actually closely related to Egypt, just immediately south of Egypt. They shared many of the same similarities. They built pyramids, some of which are still standing. So they also thrived along the Nile. Uh, but maybe a little further south in what we'd consider southern Egypt today or northern Sudan. Put is also an, a nation in the ancient world. We're, we're not as quite sure where that one was. There's a couple different possibilities. Some think the coast of Libya. And then there's Canaan. You've probably heard that one too. That Canaan is the one who received the curse from Noah at the end of chapter 9. And so he seems to be a person in chapter 9, but after Genesis 10, almost every reference to Canaan is a place, the land of Canaan, where various groups of Semitic peoples lived. But that's odd because Semitic means related to or connected to Shem. Today we usually hear that term in the, in the word anti-Semitic, that's where it comes from the descendants of Shem, the Jews. If you are hostile toward them, you're anti-Semitic. But when we talk about Semitic languages, we're talking about languages that are related to Hebrew. Semitic cultures, cultures that be related to the Jewish culture. So Arabic and Aramaic. But Genesis 10 says that Canaan didn't come from Shem, he came from Ham. And so when it comes to Canaan, is he a person or is he a region? Is, is he a, a grandson of Noah or is this a land? And then how is it that people are ethnically Semitic if they're descendants from him? And before you think, well, those, those ancient people just didn't know what they were talking about, it's pretty obvious that they did. The ancient Hebrews knew that their language was similar to those around them. Heck, two books of the Bible mix Aramaic and Hebrew together in the same book. Uh, they seem to be able to have conversations with these people without any issues or problems at all. Look at how many of these lines are phrased. Six times it says, so-and-so fathered someone else. Eight times it speaks of 
sons of so-and-so. Why does that matter? Well, because son of so-and-so is a common way to describe a nation or a people in Hebrew. The Israelites were often called, not the Israelites, but the sons of Israel. But it didn't literally mean the biological progeny of the man named Israel, even uh, though some of them may have been descended from him biologically, it also incorporated people who were not biologically connected to him, like Ruth, like Bathsheba. So the names of these peoples and places, it's a mix of individuals and nations and people groups and, and even maybe military and political alliances, affiliations, Sometimes it's a combination of those things going on. And, and while there's a lot of names in this list, it's not a complete list. Because elsewhere in the Bible, they name other peoples and other nations besides these. So it's not intended to be a complete list of every nation on the face of the earth. But we will notice a couple things. There are 70 names on this list. That's seven the number of perfection and completeness multiplied by a factor of 10. It's as if to say this list, we know it's not complete, but it's representative, it's symbolic of the whole earth. And as we read it, we get a sense of diversity in far-flung exotic places, and that's the point. This list is also very Israel-centered. There are groups that spread out largely on, play, on routes that Israel would have gotten to by sea. And, and there's groups that if Israel wanted to get there, they would head north. And there's groups that if Israel wanted to get to, they would go south. But you kind of see Israel at kind of the, the center of where all of these listed groups are. In other words, these are people that Israel dealt with on a somewhat regular basis. And so instead of creating like a biological ancestry, Genesis 10 seems to be creating something more like a descent of nations with a particular theological aim. Moses is talking about nations to say something about God. And that's what we need to focus on this morning. And it says something about God to note that all the peoples are one. Now, how are all the peoples one? Well, we can start with the obvious. This passage labors over the interconnectedness of all these individuals, all these nations, all these people groups, because they share an ancestry with three brothers who were all the sons of one man. Now, today, we all know this is true. All human beings, we know, share a common genetic heritage. And we've even determined in recent years that every human being is genetically linked to at least one woman who lived long ago by studying the mitochondrial DNA. We have at least one female ancestor in common. We know that from science. And by studying Y chromosomes, we have determined that all men share at least one male ancestor. We knew that from Scripture, too, but now science agrees. But that has not always been accepted. Even up until very recent times, many groups might have thought it absurd to suggest that human beings and various cultures and nations that they produced had a common heritage. But for Christians, for Jews, for the Israelites, for Moses, this was a basic fact. All of us are one in heritage. This is a matter-of-fact nature to this chapter that just kind of suggests, oh, this is just normal. This is just good. This is just, this is just what it is. Hadn't God blessed us and, and told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? And so all the diversity that the ancient Israelites saw as they looked upon the world as they did trade with these far-flung nations 
was simply the byproduct of God's blessing coming alive in the world. Now, there are some hints of problems in this chapter, and I'll come back to those. But for the most part, there's, there's no commentary on these peoples. There's no language commentary. There's no custom commentary. There's no tradition commentary. They, they just are. This is just what is. God spread out all these people. And that's okay. And in the context of God's blessing in chapter 9, we might be forced to admit that it's actually not just okay, but good. It's right. It's part of God's blessing. If the peoples of Ashur alongside the Dondanim and the Ludim all came from Noah, and Noah came from Adam, then maybe we owe each other something as part of this thing we call the human family. Then, whether indigenous Australian or native Siberian, we are made in God's image. And we owe each other respect and honor and, and deference, not because we're so great, because God is so great and we're made in his image. Mentioned that term Semitic and, um, you know, in light of that, it might be worth mentioning, you know, we have been seeing this rise in anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Arabism in the United States in recent years that seems to have only escalated since the start of the Israeli-Palestinian war. We see that uh, even bastions of uh, liberal education are being investigated, and uh, some of our most, we used to think, Israeli-supporting right-wing groups are being looked at critically. And as Christians we need to recognize that the Jew and the Arab are made in the image of God. And that they are one with us. Christians who take God's word seriously are not called to be morally blind. In fact, Genesis chapter 9 demands that we not be morally blind because God told Noah and his family, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. And in saying that, God was effectively taking the command to subdue the earth that was given to Adam and Eve, and telling Noah that in a post-sin world, sometimes human beings will need to stand against sin. And subdue evil. So we can't be morally blind. We can and we should decry injustices and evil wherever they crop up, but we also don't need to play whataboutism games or what's worse-ism games. We simply decry evil. We condemn evil, and we can seek through God-ordained governments to subdue evil but what we cannot do is lose our respect for people as people made in the image of God. We don't liken people to animals because our hatred of them is really a hatred of ourselves because we are what they are. We are one. We are made in God's image. Now, the text quickly moves through the nations that are connected with Japheth. Most of those are very distant people from Israel's perspective. Some of them come up now and then in the Bible, but they're far enough away that for Israel, they were usually out of sight and out of mind. And if, sometimes in their most powerful moments as a, as a political state, those nations come in, oh, we were doing trade with those faraway places. That's because we were really powerful at that time. But more time is spent on nations connected with Ham. Because these were the nations that Israel dealt with 
very regularly. And two figures stand out in that list. The first is Nimrod. There's probably a lot going on with Nimrod, and we don't have time for all of that this morning. Um, and some of the ins and outs of Nimrod have, have been lost to history. He's a mysterious figure, to be sure. But, but take a look at verse 8. We see uh, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, important side note. Daffy Duck called Elmer Fudd Nimrod because Elmer was always hunting rabbits and ducks, sometimes ducks, mostly rabbits. So he's a Nimrod. He's a hunter. And, and, and while there may have been some use before that in a less flattering way, it seems like Daffy is the one who popularized it as an insult. So nobody sees a great buckshot and goes, oh, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nobody does that, except like maybe, maybe there's some really nerdy hunting Christians, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, it didn't used to be an insult. It was a great compliment until uh, Daffy described uh, poor Elmer that way, and people thought, well, he's kind of a doofus, so I guess a Nimrod is a doofus. But there's more to the biblical Nimrod. First, he is described as a mighty man, which in other places in the Bible points to a great warrior. And the term hunter, well, it, it can mean a person who hunts deer and pheasant, but it can also describe hunting down people like a conqueror. And in verse 10, he's described as having a kingdom and in some way being responsible for a number of the great cities of the ancient world like Babel, Akkad, and Nineveh. And all of this is said very matter-of-factly. If any comment is made on it, it's that he is a mighty hunter before the Lord, so that even in God's eyes, his conquests were notable. And that says something many of us may be prone to think we've done great things in our own eyes, and maybe we succeed in doing great things in others' eyes, but Nimrod was noticed by God himself. These were some of the most powerful cities and civilizations of the ancient world. The leaders of these cities sometimes thought of themselves as gods. Whoever Nimrod was, however he may have built up his reign in the Middle East, he captures our imagination, and we're sort of in awe of him. Even the little we know about, oh, who is this guy who was this mighty hunter before the Lord? But then if we know the text, if we know the story, we also can't help but think about those places that are mentioned. We can't help to think about Babel, which is, most famous in chapter 11, so we'll get to that next week. And we think of Babylon, and we think of Nebuchadnezzar who sacked Jerusalem. And we think of Nineveh, and we think of those wicked Assyrians that Jonah preached to. And later, the kings who would wage war against and plague Israel before conquering the northern tribes. These were powerful, powerful, and often dangerous places. And then there's Canaan. We're probably already predisposed to be a little wary of Canaan because in chapter 9, Noah placed a curse on him. And Canaan is described as producing so many of the nations that inhabited the land of Canaan where the Israelites entered the land. These nations were so wicked that God's patience ran out on them and God dispossessed them and gave their land to the Israelites. But often, instead of converting or conquering the Canaanites, the Israelites found themselves being converted into Canaanites and adopting their gods and their 
false religions. The biggest threat to God's people was not the sword, but the statue, an an idol here, an idol there. The biggest threat was not a gun, but a false god. Canaan is described as having a territory that, that extends from what we would call Lebanon in the north. That's the reference to Sidon, which is still a town today. To Gaza in the south, which is the same Gaza that we hear about in the news. These were very old civilizations. 170 miles of premier coastline in a land that is otherwise quite dry and sandy. And so compared to what's nearby, Canaan represents some of the only green that you'll see on a satellite view of the region. Years later, when God would call Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he promised that he would bring them into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. See, the Canaanites had it good. It wasn't the Midwestern Corn Belt, but then corn wasn't corn yet, probably, and it certainly hadn't gotten to the Midwest yet. But they had productive regions for growing crops. They had sufficient vegetation to graze graze large herds of milk-producing domesticated animals like sheep and goats and camels. And plants meant flowers, and flowers meant bees, and bees meant honey. And several times in the Old Testament, Israel's wild honey becomes a key point in a story somehow. We might imagine that those connected to Shem, who are described as often being in and around those desert areas of the Arabian Peninsula, might be jealous of that really good land. And there's an urge in us, isn't there? There's a fascination with the idea of conquest and power and a fascination with good land and riches. Something in us wants to find value in what we can accumulate and the legacy we can leave behind our name, our monuments, our fortunes, our endowments. We're one in this way too, aren't we? We have a pull towards something in this world to make all of its glories our glories. We have a yearning for power, a desire for more. And when we don't have it, we admire those from the distance who do. We are endlessly fascinated by rich and powerful people, by famous people, as if somehow by admiring them, we might find their acceptance. The rich and the powerful and the powerful rich, I mean, the the British can't get over their monarchy and we can't stop trying to make one here. We're one in this also, aren't we? That we crave the glories of this world. But the first readers of Genesis knew something that we should know. That this isn't the end of the story. These aren't the things that make a person truly great. Nimrod may have been a mighty hunter before the Lord, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's what we read in chapter 6. We were introduced to the lines of Japheth and Ham. Shem with this, well, Japheth and Ham with this simple phrase, the the sons of so-and-so. The sons of Japheth. Colon, so-and-so. The sons of Ham, a colon, list of names. But when we get to Shem, 
We don't get that. We don't get the sons of Shem, colon, a list of names. Look at verse 21. To Shem, also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth's children, were born. Hmm. The father of all the children of Eber. That's a strange turn, we, we, especially as we read on, because Eber is listed as a son of Shelah. And Shelah is the son of Arpachshad. And Arpachshad was the third son of Shem. And so that makes Eber not the son of Shem, but theoretically the fourth generation. So at least something like Shem's great grandson, not his son. So Shem was not the literal father of Eber, in the sense of Eber being born to Shem's wife or something like that, which is another hint that the list isn't looking through an absolutely linear genetic lens. But Moses wants us to know that Eber belongs to Shem. Eber is a Semite. Why? The name Eber, or Hebrew, Eber, is connected to the word Ibrim. Ibrim becomes Ebreos in Greek. And when the Latins get a hold of it, that becomes Hebraeus. And then when it gets to, lang- uh, to English, that becomes Hebrew. The line of God's protection and blessing wasn't with the conqueror Nimrod. The line of God's protection and blessing wasn't through the topographically thriving Canaanites. It was with this largely nomadic group of desert-dwelling Semites, Shemites, descendants of Shem. That blessing and protection are accessed by taking God at his word. Trusting that what God commands is good and that what he promises is true. And that's why we know nothing about Noah except Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's all Genesis 6 tells us. We know nothing about Noah's conquests. We know nothing about his wealth. We know absolutely nothing about his herds, his flocks, his sons, uh, or, or we do know his sons, but his, his extended family. We know nothing about his bank accounts. We know that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. It's enough to know that God's favor does not rest in connection with earthly riches or with worldly power. And earthly riches and worldly power then are not a sign of God's blessing. You cannot distinguish who is blessed by God in the most significant and biblical way that we have by looking at their bank accounts or their titles in government. It rests in connection to the one who holds the treasures of heaven. It rests in connection with the one who rules the universe by his very word. From Noah came Nimrod, and and from Noah came the Canaanites, It had to be that way, because we are all one, after all. But from Noah came Shem, and from Shem came Eber, and from Eber came a man named Abram, a man God called and said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. That's not part of our series, but for another year. Connection to God makes Abram a recipient of and a channel for God's blessing. And then from Abram comes David, a king, and from David came a still greater king, Jesus, the Messiah. Do you know what the very last thing Jesus did during his earthly ministry was? It wasn't the crucifixion. It was not Jesus going to the cross and dying for the sins of sinners. He did that, but that's not the last thing. It wasn't his resurrection. It's not that Jesus raised from the dead and so showed that sin could not hold him, that he could pay for the price of our sins fully and still get up from the dead. Big deal. But that wasn't the last thing he did. It wasn't meeting with his disciples on the road to Emmaus or appearing to them at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't teaching them. In the very last paragraph of Luke's gospel, we read about the very last thing that Jesus did before leaving earth. So here's Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51. It's a long chapter. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he, this is Jesus, blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The very last thing that Jesus did before he left was to bless his disciples. God blessed Adam and Eve. But when they were removed from the garden for their sin, then the closeness to God that was necessary for blessing was jeopardized. But along the way, men and women found ways to draw near to God when they responded to his call. And one man who responded to that call, a man named Abram, was promised a blessing for all nations. How could that be when all these nations are scattered here and there like we read in Genesis 10? He's just one man. But somehow God would give him a descendant who would bless the world. And in Luke 24, Jesus gives his blessings. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Eber, the Hebrew, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Adam, Jesus gives his blessing on those who had drawn near him. And what was the response of those who had drawn near Jesus and received his blessing? The last two verses of Luke. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. See, we're alike in one other way. That like Nimrod and, and Canaan, the glories of this world, whatever they might be, pull our hearts away from the nearness and proximity to God that we need for finding his blessing. And yet, in the aftermath of sin, in the aftermath of wickedness, this was part of God's design to bring us back to him. I think Paul was thinking about Genesis chapter 10, when he was in Athens, and he was preaching at the Areopagus. 
And as he began to explain the Christian faith to these intellectual Gentiles, these philosophers, he had to begin with something more fundamental. He couldn't just jump into Jesus. He needed to give them the context. He needed to give them the backstory. And, and so he wanted to give them some basic truths, some fundamental ideas taught by the, what we call the Old Testament. Because without some of those basic truths, Jesus' story doesn't make much sense. And so Paul tells these intellectuals and philosophers in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. From one man, God made every nation. That's Genesis 10. And he put them in their places, in their times, for a purpose. A purpose we all share. We're one in this, that we would find him and worship him and be reconnected to his blessing. And when they didn't find him, Jesus comes to seek his wayward creations. And now Jesus is sending out messengers to find the lost and to invite them to a new home, the home of God's blessing, a home that he is building, building for us. We are one in this also, that we need to find God's blessing and that we were placed where we were placed on this earth to find God's blessing. And many of us have failed to heed that call. But if we are Christians, then we have been uh, deputized, as it were, to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ to be messengers of this good news that the blessing of God can be reclaimed through Jesus, the Hebrew. Jesus, the descendant of Noah. Jesus, the ultimate son of man, son of Adam. When we recognize that all of the nations are one, then we have to also understand that means God loves the nations. And if God loves the nations, then we, if we are God's people, should love the nations. How do we love the nations? We go. We go to the nations. We take our skills and our lack of skills, our abilities and our lack of abilities, and we take them to the places where Christ has not been made known to make him known. We send. We send when, when we feel that God is calling us to stay put, but we know that we are part of God's mission, and so we do what we can do to make God known by making sure that God's messengers get where they are called to be. 
One of the easy ways we can do that is, is with the, uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we participate in. When we give to that 100%, nothing goes to overhead. Everything goes directly to missions and missionaries on the ground to make sure the gospel is preached to far-flung places that can be named and cannot be named for security reasons. Of course, there's other ways to do that as well. If we love the nations, we pray for them. We prayed for Turkey this morning. We often make it a habit, not every Sunday, but we often make it a habit to pray for nations. The reason why we do that is because God's mission to rescue the nations is our mission. His heartbeat is our heartbeat as Christians. And we want to see these various cultural expressions of worship of Jesus Christ take root as they receive the blessing that can only be recovered in him. So we pray and we send and some of us will go. And maybe God is calling you to go. Are you praying? Are you sending? Are you going? You doing some combination of those? Because God loves his nations. We are one with them. They are our family. And they're lost. And they have missed God's blessing. And so let's send out some people to make it known. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a people who cares as much about the nations as you do? Would you give us the heart of Jesus for the nations? Would you kill and help us to put to death by your spirit any, any traces of, of, of racism, of ethnocentrism, of nationalism that feels like we are superior to any other group or people? Give us clear eyes about the fact that we are simply like each other. And there, but by the grace of God, go we. Give us a, a memory of the way that you saved us from our wretchedness. Teach us about how wayward we were. And give us the compassion that we need for those who you have placed all over this earth. We think sometimes you've placed them so far away that they cannot hear. But you say you placed them there so that they would hear. May they hear, God. May they come to know you. Would you raise up laborers to go into the fields and harvest a crop to receive your blessing. May we be a people who go. And would you raise up even missionaries from this little church to go? Would we be a people that is generous to send? Generous with our money, with our time, and our talents to make the work on the field possible. And make us a people who pray, knowing that the power to do all this rests in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.